Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Thanks, Annie. Um, sure, yeah, thanks for that uh, introduction. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I just also want to take the opportunity to maybe honor you, Henny, and, uh, and Rochelle as our leaders. It's been, you know, we, me and my wife have been uh, members of this church now for about four years. And I always start my sermons this way because uh, it really is, 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 um, is true. But we're so thankful for this community and just uh, <clears throat> our leaders here and what, what, what we get to learn here and the people we get to connect with here. Um, it's really been for us one of the biggest blessings coming, coming to Johannesburg. So, so thank you for that. Um, and y'all, I'm, I'm super excited to share the word this morning. Thank you, um, worship team, um, for, Amen. for the, for the worship and, and everyone who, who shared words. Uh, it's always really encouraging, um, to listen, to listen to that. And, um, yeah, so oh, this has been a, a crazy year. I'm sure most of us would agree that this year didn't really turn out the way um, that we thought it would, right, with, uh, with, um, with COVID and, uh, and everything that, that, that came with that. It's, it's been an interesting one. But it's also been uh, interesting here in some more um, aspects. Uh, one of the things which, which surfaced this year again and something which I actually want to want to focus more on this morning is um is is the fight for equality. All right. My sermon is, is entitled Power and Equality and this year this conversation came came to the fore again um of, of equality and, and, and our society and started asking those tough questions, you know. Um if there if we, there are, are differences in our society that we're starting starting to see and if we see that our society isn't completely equal, this this kind of cry started that that um, that we need to that there needs to be a correction um, of that, and I think that in in comparison with lockdown, at least for me personally, um, created a space where I could sit down and I could really think uh, about some of these about some of these issues and do some introspection. Uh, we we were also really um, privileged to to be able to have conversations um, in this church with. Um, you know about about these topics and to hear people's stories and 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 that really actually um, helped me a lot to to realize that there are there are so many things um, in our society that that I don't see always um, and I started to ask some some tough questions of myself as well in the way that I view um, church the way that I view our society the way that I view you know brothers and sisters um, that are that are with me. And it, I think it was it was a really really good experience. And as part of that, I also went to the Bible and and started looking at what does the Bible say about equality and and kind of meditating on this this whole uh, movement or this whole uh, question of of equality itself. And and essentially, at 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 the core um, of the fight for equality, there there is a truth claim. And next to that truth claim, there there is a a, a kind of a demand which that truth claim. Um, makes then, and the truth claim is that that people are equal, uh, right? That that people are equal, and because they are equal, they deserve equal treatment. They deserve equal um, rights. They deserve equal opportunities. And and the demand that kind of goes along with that is that if our society is not representing that, then we need to we need to correct that. Our society needs to be one that that represents the equality. Um, the equality of people, and it, it kind of inherent to that is um, 
is then this this need for if there is an imbalance, there needs to be a correction, either uh, a shift of power, kind of away from those who have it to to a more equal um, society. And I really started started thinking about this, and also about you know it's one of those really really tough um, problems because if you if if you look at it, there there are always multiple kind of stories and narratives that go into this. Um, and I started looking at the Bible, and from, for me as, as a Christian, I, I, I kind of understood why equality would be something that's important to me, and why it would be something that I would be passionate about, not just kind of passively understanding that it's there, but actually required to actively um, pursue. But I also started the question, asking the question, but what about people who are not approaching it from, from a faith-based view? Because I engaged with a lot of people who were very passionate about justice and equality and who, who didn't say that they kind of subscribe to any any faith um, or, or any any religion and um, and I started asking well what about for those people right because if we're going to come up with a sustainable solution for this it's important that that we understand where this thing um, comes from and it's really interesting because in the West obviously we have a lot of of different uh, worldviews and um, and each of them kind of has, all, I mean, all of the faiths does have something uh, to say about equality. And it's really interesting when you start reading up on that. I would actually encourage you uh, to do that and to see what different faiths say about equality. But then you also get these kind of worldviews that are more prevalent in the West that maybe kind of go across uh, the boundaries of faith and that people prescribe to um, often nowadays regardless of, of whether they claim to be religious or not. And... Um, Without getting too philosophical, I just want to quickly cover four of them, um, and they're big words, so brace yourselves. But the, the, the four kind of, as I understand it, um, prevalent worldviews in the West today are relativism, pluralism, naturalism, and secularism. Okay, lots of, lots of isms, um, but I'm a, they're actually really simple concepts. So relativism says that, that truth is relative. So you get to determine your own truth. And if you decide that something is true for you, that's, that's fine. As long as you're not hurting anybody, that's okay. That's true for you. It might not be true for me. Pluralism says that there are many truths. So the classic kind of analogy is that there are lots of blind men standing next to an elephant and they're each feeling out the elephant. And the one is feeling out in his, and the, the elephant is symbolic for truth. And he says, truth is like this because he's feeling the side. And another one is feeling the trunk. And he says, no, 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 no. Truth is like this. But the analogy goes that all of them are actually feeling the same elephant and therefore there are many roads up the mountain there are many ways to to god or to nirvana or whatever but actually it's all kind of the same the same truth um, and therefore we can accept a lot of views right we can be really tolerant um, in that and then secularism says you can believe pretty much anything that you want um, as long as you don't bring it into the into the public sphere you keep it you keep it at home but when it comes to the public sphere we we stay logical we stay scientific and naturalism says that there is no supernatural truth there is only the natural and those two kind of go together but there is only the material and what we can prove scientifically and as i started thinking about this i started realizing that these worldviews pretty quickly run into some issues with this question of equality um and i think that's important because Let's start with something like naturalism, right? If, if I look at nature, at least, um, I don't really see too much kind of pointing me towards this, this concept of equality. What I see in nature is, is competition, you know, survival of the fittest. You have intense competition between 
species or even groups within the same species and, and you see them competing for dominance constantly and the one who is the strongest gets to gets to uh, have and hold that dominance and yes there is kind of an equilibrium where, where species stay the same but there is not peace and tranquility there, there is this intense um, competition and a lot of the theories I've heard about um, equality from a naturalist view has got to do with instinct and, and, and survival drive but if my instinct is different than yours it's, it's, it's kind of hard um, to say that I'm wrong and, 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 and you're not um, because that's just the way it is, that's just the way I am, you know. Um, and then you get like naturalism, ugh, you get relativism and pluralism and I think they kind of have the same problem. I, I watched a, a very interesting video the other day of a guy, uh, a white guy about my age, a little bit shorter than me, going to a campus and, and speaking to people. And he, and he goes to them and he, he says to them, well, what if I told you that, that I were a woman? And the students all go, well, that's cool, you know, we can accept that. You can identify as what you want. If you want to identify as a woman, good for you, you know. And then he goes, okay, well, what if I told you that I'm a Chinese woman? And again, they go, well, awesome, you know. Maybe you've got Chinese ancestors and you choose to, to identify as that. But if you want to do that, that's fine. You're not hurting anybody. Like, good for you, right? And again, okay, the next one, he used feet because it's America. But I'll try and convert it to, to meters. He, he basically goes like, okay, well, what if I told you that I'm a three meter tall Chinese woman? And then some of them still go, well, that's fine, you know, good for you, as, as long as, as if, if that's what you want to identify as. And some of them start going like, um, well, I would tell you that you're lying, right? To which he responds, so you're willing to accept I'm a Chinese woman, but I'm not allowed to be a three-meter-tall Chinese woman. And it, the whole exercise is kind of just done to, to, to expose how hard it gets um, when you try and enforce something like relativism, because where is that line, right? You can't tell people that you can have your own truth and then make a truth claim, something like people are equal, because that would be up to people to determine um, for themselves, and the same, the same with pluralism. And then finally, secularism, um, where it says we, we have to keep our faith private, but the problem is that when we enter into these types of debates, we inevitably go past kind of the scientific s space, you know. Ethical dilemmas are, are kind of a, a classic um, example of that. And as soon as you pass away from the scientific, you have to bring in some type of view. You have to bring in some type of worldview about the way that things are because that is going to cause your response to it. And, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't go into too much detail about it, but we've seen in history a lot of kind of experiments of that, something like, you know the ev the evolutionary worldview during Nazi Germany that said, well, we need to we need to um, support the best genes, you know, and they had this problem, uh, this this program of of eugenics, um, where they wanted to kind of create a, a superior race because that's what they based it on. They said survival of the fittest, you know. You you bring in some some type of view, and and it, all of us have got a view, and when we enter into that space, we 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 inevitably are are bringing in um, a worldview whether whether we like it or not. And I think that that is important to, to know because together we have to still kind of get to this place where we want to get to a, a solution, right? We want to we get to and answer the question of how do we actually solve um, the problem of, 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 of inequality. And I, I don't think that it's... Um, 
I, I, firstly, I, I think that as humans we have tried to solve this problem. The, the fight for for equality is is nothing new, and unfortunately, sometimes in the past we've we failed dismally at at doing that. But also at times we've we've made very good strides. And I I believe, and I don't find it to be too much of a coincidence that a lot of the people who have made big strides towards equality have been Christians, because I think that the Bible gives us a coherent view for why uh, we seemingly have this inherent understanding that people are equal, um, and also this desire to to bring equality in society, but also I think the Bible gives us some some solutions or proposes some solutions to to this problem, and and I want to look at that um, this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you are, I th I'm thinking they're probably going to put it up on the screen. Let's read together from uh, from a verse or a, a piece of scripture in in Mark, um, where Jesus' disciples come to him. Um, and it it kind of centers around this this problem of or this this topic of of power inequality. So Mark ten from verse thirty five, and James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one in your right hand and one in your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great, great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now in this, in this piece of scripture we see two of Jesus' disciples um, coming to him and they ask him this question. Actually, before they ask him this question, they make this statement, which I find really interesting. They say to him that we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And I, I don't know like in which way they meant that, but it kind of reminds me of when I was like a kid and I used to go to my mom and be like, mom, I'm going to tell you something now, but you've got to promise to forgive me, you know, if I do that. Um, and I just, I love Jesus's response to them, right? What do you want me to do for you? Like that's, that's wisdom <laughs> right there, I think. And, um, and then they ask him this, this question. They say to him, well, when you are in your glory, we want to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. They're asking him for positions of power. And probably they were not asking him about his eternal glory because they believed that he was there to establish an earthly kingdom, um, to liberate Israel from Roman rule and to establish a new kind of Israel kingdom where he would be the ruler and he would he would be Israel's liberator and the new ruler in this in this system and they're asking him for these positions of power in that earthly kingdom which they thought that he was going to be establishing and he responds to them and he says you do not know what you're asking firstly you don't know what you're asking because that's not what I'm here to do I'm not here to establish an earthly kingdom I'm not going to become an earthly ruler but secondly, you don't know what you're asking because you do not understand the kingdom of God. You don't understand how it works. 
And then he asks them a question. He says to them, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized with? And I believe what he's referring to there was the suffering that he was going to go through for the world, right? Are you willing to, instead of being preferred above others, like you're asking me, to lay down your rights for others? Are you willing um, to live your life in service to others? Are you willing to suffer and eventually even die for others? And they confidently ask uh, or answer, yo, we're, we're able, you know? We'll do it. We'll learn. We'll, we'll hustle. We'll do the online courses on how to be leaders in Israel. We'll do what it takes. You know, we've got it in us to, to make it as, as, as these co-leaders in, in, in your earthly kingdom. And then Jesus answers them with something really profound. He says to them, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And we know what happened to most of the disciples after Jesus' death. John depending on which John wrote the book of Revelation, we're not 100% sure about. But all of the disciples, after Jesus died, dedicated their lives to spreading the gospel and to serving and, and loving others without gaining any form of worldly um, power or position. And most of them, if not all of them, eventually actually were killed for their faith. They died for the gospel. But the men who did that and the men who were asking Jesus here for these these positions of power were two very different sets of men because something changed in them. Something changed in them that they were, they found something that was not only worth dedicating their lives to, but actually dying for without gaining any earthly um any earthly position, right? And then when the other disciples hear about this, they're, they're angry, right? The Bible says indignant, but they're like, they're pretty ticked off because they're like, well, James and John are trying to get the upper hand on us here. Um, and we don't like that because those positions could, could be ours, right? And when Jesus sees this going on, he kind of, he stops the bus and he says, well, he doesn't say, he doesn't say guys, but he's like, hey guys, like, hold on, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Because in the world, there is a system of power. They, they lord it over them. In the world, there is this constant competition for power. And in the world, people use any means possible to get power and to maintain it. They lord it over them. They, they exercise authority right, um, over others to, to get into to maintain power. But that's not the way that it's going to work among you. Among you, it's going to be different. Among you, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And if you want to be first, you should be slave of all, he says. And it's maybe worthwhile to quickly digress just to talk about the, the historical context for what Jesus might have been meaning when he said the word slave. Because when we hear the word slave, we, we attach it to something specific, usually um, to abduction or forceful removal, removal of people from their homeland to serve as manual laborers uh, somewhere else. And it also has an has a ethnic kind of uh, connotation to it. But in the Bible's context, a slave would have been something slightly different. From my understanding, you could become a slave in, in kind of one of three ways. Firstly, those who were prisoners of war. So if, if Rome went and they conquered a country, um, instead of killing all of the inhabitants, sometimes they took prisoners of war, and those people would then serve, um, serve in their empire as, as, as servants and potentially could earn their own freedom. Um, then... The other two ways are kind of through indebtedness. The first is if you committed a crime and you owed a debt to society or someone specific within society, then you would actually be forced to work that off, to work it back. 
um, you had to correct the wrong which you had caused um, until you'd paid it off. Or thirdly, if you had a normal debt, so if I lent money from you and for some reason I couldn't pay that off, I would become a slave um, until I had paid off that debt, until I'd right the wrong uh, which I had committed. So when Jesus is saying here that we should have this mentality of being a slave, it's, it's kind of referring to someone whose purpose is serving others and it's got this concept of indebtedness to it. Right, as if we are indebted to others, as if we owe them something. Um, and, and, and what is that? How, how, does, how does that work? What do we owe others? Well, I think the answer Jesus gives us in the last verse that we read here, where he says, For even the Son of Man, that is him referring to himself, God in bodily form, God who made the universe, God who owns everything, who is entitled to, to everything, um, and who we are indebted to through rebellion and sin that we committed. That God, when he chose to reveal himself to us, he didn't come as a tyrant who said, okay, here I am, now I'm going to force you to do my will, or here I am to exact, exact my debt which, which you owe me for, for wronging me um, through sin. That's not the way that he chose to reveal himself to us. Instead, he chooses to reveal himself to us by coming down in a form like ours, in, in, in bodily form, for 30 years, living among us, understanding us, serving and loving us, and eventually um, sacrificing himself, paying the debt which we had towards him um, through his own blood. That's what this word means. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom means that you pay off someone's debt, right? You pay what was owned what was owed by that person in their place. That is, that is the God that we serve. And now, a question which I would ask is, but how do we, how do we get that servant mentality? How, how do we make that practical in our lives? Well, I think there are three things um, that we need to understand in order, in order to, to obtain to that. Um, firstly, starting off as a basis is what Jesus has done for us. But I think there are three kind of keys which, which he continues to, um, or which this piece of scripture reveals to us um, in the portion following what we just read. And I'll give them to you before we read the scripture. But I think the three really important things to, for us to understand if we are going to serve others is who we are, firstly, who, and secondly, who our God is, and thirdly, where we are going. Let's read together from, from Mark 46, which follows right on to this piece of scripture which we just read. From 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he, that was Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Who we are, who God is, and what he has done for us. So, 
here again we see a piece or an encounter of, of someone with Jesus where he comes to him with a request and he actually asks, Jesus asks this guy exactly the same question, what do you want me um, to do for you? But there are some, some striking differences between this encounter and the one that we read before. Firstly, James and John, when they had a request of Jesus, they asked for power and for position. Right? They thought that they had it somewhere within themselves to be something great, and they wanted to take this opportunity um, to secure that. Blind Bartimaeus knew that he was blind, and he knew that he had a need. And he knew that Jesus was the one who could help him with that. He knew that he had an ailment, and, and, and he had a problem that had to be solved. And he approaches Jesus, and he doesn't ask for position or for power, but instead he asks for mercy. He asks for mercy from Jesus, to be healed from the element which he has. And we ourselves, we need to realize that when we come to Jesus, we come as sinners. You know, something which I find interesting is when I was listening to a lot of the debate around the, this fight for equality um, at the moment, there's a lot of people saying, and even like, in a sense, I guess, accusing these groups of being Marxist in their view. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, Marxism is a view that that basically identifies this problem and rightly identifies this problem um, in our society that there is oppression, there is the oppressor and the oppressed. And it loosely defines society or breaks society into kind of two classes. The lower class who are the working, normal, artisanal type of person um, who work for a salary and, and the upper class who use their power to oppress the lower class, who exploit them um, for self-gain. And then it makes a suggestion to a proposed solution. It says to solve this problem of, of class inequality, to solve this problem of oppression in the world, we need to eradicate classes. Basically, the lower class needs to stand up. They need to take power from the upper class through revolution. And once they've got that, they need to distribute it equally. Right? They need to become... Uh, it, our society needs to become a classless society. We need to do away with private property. We need to do away with a lot of these things that empower some but leave others unempowered. And we've had some experiments with that in our history. Soviet Russia, Communist China. And it seems that every time that this happens, I mean, ideologically it's, it's a great idea, but it seems that our problem is not mainly ideological or political. Because when that happens, when power shifts hands and, and gets into, into the hands of, of the lower classes and they start organizing and they form kind of an administrative hierarchy, instead of, of distributing that power equally, you just have a new elite that forms. Someone new takes over that power and those who used to be oppressed becomes the oppressor themselves. And I think the reason for that is because our problem is not ideological. It's, it's something in the heart. Right, we've we, we we've got a problem of sin. I really like how um, or Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels said in, in in the Communist Manifesto. They basically said that the main problem is this class problem. They identified as something external, as there is a problem with our society that needs to be corrected, and we've tried and 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 we failed badly in the past because those societies eventually become a lot more oppressive than than what they were um, aimed at. At eradicating, but I really like the way that Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, said it. Who himself was was a man who lived in the Soviet Union and suffered under under the oppression of communism. 
He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts to the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, the problem is that it seems that even if we have got the best intentions under the right circumstances, when we get faced with the question of distributing power, it, it tends to corrupt us. And the cycle tends to repeat itself. We don't need a new political system. We don't need a new ideology. We need something to change in us. We need something to change in our hearts. We don't need to ask for power. We need to ask for mercy. And the second thing is we need to understand who God is. Um, when, when, when Bartimaeus hears uh, Jesus is passing by, he cries out, right? Son of David, have mercy on me. James and John thought that he was going to be um, the one coming to restore an earthly kingdom of Israel. Bartimaeus refers to him as the son of David, re referring to his messianic lineage. And he knew that he was the Messiah, the coming one who was going to set things right. It's amazing to me that, that a blind beggar is able to see something that that the, the most trained academic Pharisees um, in Israel were not able to see. That Jesus was the coming one, the healer, right? That he was the one who could heal um, blindness, who could open the eyes of the blind. And that's what he appeals to him for, um, to heal him from his blindness. And we, in similar way, we need to ask God to heal us from our blindness. Because we do have this problem of sin. But we also know that God is the one who heals the heart. Right? The Bible says that when we come to Jesus, he makes a new creation. He makes all things new. The old is passed away, the new has come. Right? And there's this amazing kind of symbolism that plays off here with blindness and being able to see. Right? The blind beggar who is physically blind can see something that those who might be able to see and have the power um, are blind to. And we need to ask God to heal us of our blindness, to heal us of the blindness that keeps us from seeing other people as, as people created in the image of God, that heals us from the blindness that, that makes us bitter towards others, that makes us resent others, that makes us not see the great um, debt that we ourselves have been, have been forgiven. And then finally, we need to understand where we are going. So when Bartimaeus does come to Jesus, he... Um, he asks him to be, to be healed of his blindness, and Jesus does just that. He, he performs a miracle. He, he heals him um, of blindness, and Bartimaeus can suddenly see, right? Now, that miraculous act is, is, is part of a bigger narrative. I mean, it's part right there in the scripture of, of a narrative um, that Jesus is trying to, I guess, in a sense, tell people a story about blindness and physical and spiritual blindness, but it's also part of a bigger narrative because Jesus came to earth um, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to earth to set right the things that were wrong. And when he left earth, he actually gave us that same command. He said to us that we also were to be people who destroy the works of the devil, that we were here to establish the kingdom of God and to set right what was out of place since the fall of man. And he, and he makes this promise. He says that, that he would be with us for as long as this age continues. That he would be the one who empowers us to do that. Because that is, it's his story. 
It's, it's his goal. It's his mission to set right what is wrong. That is the God that we serve, the God who does not desire for us um, to be in pain and suffering, but to liberate us into knowing him, the God who doesn't desire us to be separate from him, but to know him in intimacy. And we know that as long as we're on earth, that's, uh, we can only complete that partially, right? We get to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. We get to be people who show others through um, very practical means, whether it be the healing of the sick, whether it be the restoration of relationships, whether it be the setting rights right of, of our societies, we get to be a foretaste for something. And that something is the coming judgment and restoration of the world. Because Jesus said that he would come back one day. And that in that day, all actions would be judged. Every wrong would be set right. Those who had been oppressed would be liberated. Not only from the physical oppression on earth, but from the oppression of sin. And we would be restored back to his perfect image for us. Back to his perfect order, which, which he created us to be. Back to perfect um, relationship with him. And I think that it's important for us to understand that that is where we are headed. That is the hope that we have. But also, while we are here on earth, that we have got this mission, right? That we have got this mission to be the foretaste for that. While I was um, meditating on this, I one of the things which I read was Martin Luther Jr. King's uh, Letters from Birmingham Prison. And I mean, an amazing document written by by an amazing man and I really want to encourage you that if you've got the time to actually go and read that because there was just something uh, you know uh, he's becoming like or he is um he's really someone who who encapsulated this this desire to see justice in society this desire for things to be set right um and for God's kingdom to come and I just want to read us a portion of, of that letter. And I quote, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed, in those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. <laughs> it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being, in inverted commas, disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they, they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to become astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infesticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo, far more from being <clears throat> far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. <clears throat> Sorry. I really have to control my emotions here. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose, lose its authenticity. 
forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as a irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment of the church has turned into outright disgust. We as the church are called not just to be a foretaste, but to lead people um, to a God who is love, to lead people to a God who loves this world and who's got a plan for its restoration. I mean, people out there are looking for an answer. They're desperate for an answer, right? And we've tried a lot of answers in our own strength um, before, but they haven't worked. But Jesus is the answer, and we've got the answer, and we need to, we need to be a people and a church who shares that answer with people. And we, through our lives, are examples of that. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.